Welcome. We're Kevin Smith and Mark Bleicher from Arate Incident Response. We're excited to share actual incident response cases, chat about IT security, and introduce you to the most influential players in the industry. With that, let's get moving. And thanks for joining this episode of Security Superpowers. Hello, thanks for joining us for another episode of Security Superpowers. Joining me as always is Mark Bleicher. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Kevin. We covered a lot of great topics last week. We sure did. We have a lot more to cover today. So our topic last week was threat intelligence. And uh, we had Mr. Evgeny Urchoff as our special guest. We brought him back again this morning. Good morning, Evgeny. Good morning, guys. Thank you for having him back. Absolutely. And Stephen, Ramey. Hey, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad to be back after uh, the last food fight I started. I wasn't sure if you guys would welcome me back here. <laughs> <laughs> well, after we cleaned up, we realized that everybody loved the episode. So we thought we'd bring uh, both you and Evgeny back and, and uh, touch on this really important topic of threat intelligence. Um, you know, during our, our last episode, we, we talked about the types of ransomware, uh, the importance of threat intelligence during forensics. But um, we really didn't uh, dive too deeply into why threat intelligence is becoming the most effective weapon against uh, getting infected. And I know that we're using a lot of that intelligence. We're sharing it with breach coaches. We're sharing it with carriers. And we're sharing it with clients. And uh, back again, Mr. Uh, Evgeny Urchoff, could you uh, expound a little bit on, uh, on why that is the case why this is becoming a, a central weapon for for use on educating customers uh, yes definitely and we kind of touched uh on that topic a little bit uh, during the last episode uh but uh i guess from uh like one of the most important uh piece of information that's uh that's really helpful for our clients and for hopefully for people that will not become our clients in the future, is uh, information uh, on different groups of ransomware variants uh, that shows exactly how they operate, uh, how they uh, breach the victim's environment, uh, what kind of tools they're using. Uh, because uh, in a lot of cases, uh, those groups don't evolve very quickly. Uh, so by having that information in their hands, uh, it's very easy to build a uh, a protection plan uh, on how to secure environment and ensure that uh, those type of like vectors and uh, tools uh, would be completely blocked either by EDR solution or through other like security uh, mitigation efforts. So you know, the, the, and you and you just mentioned it. You know, you determine the vector, you determine the delivery methodology. Uh, I'm I'm super interested, and in, and this is where I'd like to open it up to everybody. You know what? What are the process? What's the process look like after we've collected all that data? What happens next? Uh, as you mentioned already, uh, we collect uh, more than 150 data points uh, from each engagement that we have, uh, and we also collect uh, technical indicators uh, from uh, uh, from all our, our cases. Uh, and uh, the more we see like the uh, same type of variants showing up in our investigations, uh, the, the bigger the data set is available um i mean from from remediation standpoint uh it's it's really uh goes down to i guess like security awareness within the community uh can uh sharing that information uh as you mentioned with the clients uh and like just with public in general and law enforcement as well uh and hopefully out of it uh other people can learn 
the lesson uh, from somebody else's mistakes uh, and become more resilient and prevent those ransomware attacks in the future. Um, how are we engaging with law enforcement and what are the, you know, wh- what kinds of things are we sharing with them? Uh, so uh, obviously since we work in, uh, with, uh, in, in uh, collaboration on all those, on all those cases with uh, law firms uh, that provide legal counsel uh, to our clients, uh, certain information we cannot share, for example, identity of the victim. Uh, but uh, like when it comes to collaboration uh, with law enforcement that we do on on, on few variants, uh, we can share still like technical indicators that we collect. Uh, we can share like Bitcoin wallets that are associated uh, with uh, specific variants, uh, and just uh, having that information alone uh, usually helps out our law enforcement partners as well. Uh, because as we mentioned during the last episode, uh, like when uh, when victims get breached by ransomware, uh, obviously the like, collaboration with uh, law enforcement and sharing information with law enforcement, it, it's not a high priority for them. They, they just want to get back up and running and secure their systems as quickly as possible. So in some cases, they just don't share any like technical indicators as well. Um, and by us providing that information like anonymously, like without uh, revealing the name uh, of our clients, uh, it definitely helps out uh, with those investigations on law enforcement side. And where does that lead? I mean, I mean, it, it would imagine I would imagine that that you know, the FBI and and any other law enforcement agency that's dealing with cybercrime at this point, they must be, just get a huge wave of information. How are they leveraging it, uh, and what are they doing to make it actionable data? Uh, the more information they get, uh, there's a bigger chance that uh, they may find a certain piece of information that uh, may help them to identify the operators uh, behind a certain variant. <clears throat> because uh, the, usually attackers are doing a pretty good job uh, like hiding their identities and they're trying to use like VPNs and Tor uh, uh, networks to hide their communications. Uh, but we're uh, all humans, and uh, those guys are humans as well. So it's uh it, it's like if they will make like one mistake, uh, let's say like they forget to turn on the VPN before they connect it to to an email account, and then like law enforcement can subpoena information uh, from that email provider. Uh, there's a very good chance that they may find their real IP address, and out of like hundreds of uh, like other IP addresses that are associated with the VPN, that may provide the additional insights. So. The bottom line is like the, the more information we share with them, the better. Uh, and the same uh, thing with the uh, Bitcoin wallet. So like Bitcoin, I assume to be, assume to be uh, fairly like anonymous and hiding the identities of uh, of uh, users. Uh, but uh, it's not uncommon for uh, cyber criminals to use uh, different illegal exchanges to uh, like move the funds around and launder them. And uh, sooner or later, those exchanges may get shut down by law enforcement, and uh, the logs will be available to them as well. Yeah, and Kevin, I'll, I'll add to that that um, you know, if, the more information we can pass to those law enforcement agencies, the more information they in turn can pass back to other victims or, or potential victims, because uh, they are monitoring these uh, these uh, uh, these crime circles, um, where if they detect that there is a breach in um, there's activity to a client network and they can get in front of that that um, potential victim quickly, they can share those indicators. So when IR firms come in 
um, the FBI has provided indicators and the IR firms that uh, are helping those um, potential victims uh, of ransomware start to lock down their systems uh, through, you know, endpoint detection monitoring, uh, like, like a product like Sentinel-1 or, or even blocking IP addresses at the firewall. So that intelligence uh, becomes vital for aiding their investigation as well as um, helping um, future victims protect their infrastructure from those attacks. You know, I also want to say it, uh, that threat intel sharing also works both ways. We've had engagements where legal has brought us in because the FBI has contacted a client because they found a piece of information somewhere, whether that's on the surface web or dark web. Uh, and, you know, that's all we have is that high level information. And then we go off and do our own analysis and then we're actually can provide more context back to the FBI that then allows them to to catch or go after you know additional uh, threat actors that may be tied to this. So that that happens quite a bit as well. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll they'll provide a, a tip and we can uh, run into ground and back and forth. So it, it's helpful both both ways, I think. That's a good point, too. You know, that anytime we can get visibility outside of the ecosystem that we're in charge of, um, you know, do we send it out to to other organizations for their consumption? Uh, on the threat intel side, like, especially like when we have uh, like certain indicators like IP addresses for like known uh, C2 domains. Uh, so there are like few uh, open platforms where like uh, all all the IR companies collaborate and share the information. So we, we definitely contribute to that, especially if you find uh, the, the new set of IP addresses or domains uh, for like a, I don't know banking trojan or maybe like a C2 that was used uh, by Cobalt Strike in the ransomware attack, uh, and that information automatically can be consumed uh, by other IR providers uh, and also. Like uh, supporters, uh, support uh, companies that let's say like provide like VPN solutions, etc. So there's a good chance that uh, those IP addresses will get blocked uh, across the board uh, and prevent those attacks for some of the victims. And, and that's interesting. Um, I know that when we're you know we're actively engaged in negotiations, um, is it is there ever a circumstance where law enforcement jumps in <laughs> thwarts our efforts or or you know complicates things by maybe because they don't have all of the information and i'm not necessarily picking on any domestic law enforcement agency but in general i mean i know that this is a global concern uh we all can't share data and we all can't be holding hands against a common enemy um at all times so any instances where uh, we've been actively working to rescue a customer and law enforcement steps in. I think, Stefan, you have a good story on that about the email account takeover. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 sometimes it's not as explicit as, as that, Kevin. Um, other times it's explicit where, you know, we, we lose access uh, during conversations. Um, and that's, that's anything from um, not so much law enforcement, but maybe the terms of service that the uh, email provider that's being communicated through, um, they shut the account down. Um, but, you know, from a, a law enforcement aspect, um, usually it, depending on where they are involved in the process, a lot of the times they come in after the event occurs um, by notification through like an IC3 complaint. So, so usually the event occurs um, 
some type of restoration uh, um, happens within the client environment concurrently while the investigation is taking place. And then um, those indicators and information can then be provided to the FBI or law enforcement uh, to help with um, as a supplemental for to continue their investigation. And then there's and then there's the outcome. Uh, a law enforcement agency gets threat intelligence. Um, th- they determine who it is. Um, where does this lead? Uh, and is there ever circumstances where you know it's it's absolutely a hundred percent they nailed it? They know who did it. What happens after they've done that? And and are there any examples that we could share where? law enforcement basically leveraged threat intelligence and uh, and took action? I mean, it's a, certainly a complicated, um, it's a complicated, you know, process that, that law enforcement has to follow. And, and again, I know you've got some good experience in this area. Um, you know, just the, the 100,000 foot view, it's, it's really, you know, the FBI, we focus on the FBI, they have to figure out where the money trail goes, right? They have to literally follow the money. And once that thing hits a bank account, they then can, you know, pinpoint people and start to figure out any type of money mules and uh, look at the crime from that financial aspect. Uh, But from the the underworld, um, it's pretty hard to identify these individuals. But when they do, um, you know, there's a lot that the government can uh, do against those countries uh, or those individuals specifically. And I suspect there's there's threat actors that are intrinsically tied to state, right? And um, there's protections put in place probably for them. Um, anything, any examples of where, you know, that's led to uh, – complications with regard to dealing with uh, a threat actor how do we find out information about who we're doing business with and and what kinds of steps do we take to make sure that we're not crossing lines i mean there's well there's a a few different uh pieces of threat intel here and and maybe we start i think the, the big one for what you're asking is you know how do we make sure that we're following the our process and the things that we've put in place to make sure, like you said, know who we're dealing with. So with that, uh, you know, that, that brings up OFAC. Um, it's the first thing. So that might be an interesting topic. We definitely get a lot of questions, uh, especially like when we get engaged on the new uh, IR matter, uh, whether or not it's legal uh, to pay the ransom because we actually paying the cyber criminals. Uh, and uh, the, you're absolutely correct, Mark. Uh, the OFAC plays uh, the uh, very important role here uh, because uh, if uh, if certain entities uh, like individuals, uh, Bitcoin wallets, uh, in in some cases even banking trojans are on on the OFAC list, uh, if we have a case where um, uh, where we observe one of those indicators that match the list, uh, legally we're not allowed to pay. Uh, and as a part of our OFAC process, we're not only looking at the specific Bitcoin wallets, uh, because at, at the end of the day, it's not very useful uh, because they can be changed uh, 
uh, and literally like every minute. And uh, in a lot of uh, cases with ransomware cases, uh, we we see that attackers are creating new Bitcoin wallets. So the OFAC check uh, is really not very helpful. Uh, but to avoid any additional complications, especially since some of the banking trojans I mentioned on the OFAC list, uh, we go uh, a step uh, farther. And uh, if we're dealing with a uh, with a uh, ransomware that potentially uh, may be high risk based on our threat intelligence, uh, BitPaymer and Wasted would be a good example. So even before we uh, make a conclusion on whether or not we allow to pay, uh, we uh, research the victim's environment. Uh, so like the first step would be to deploy Sentinel-1 to see if we uh, find any evidence of uh, of the Trojans that are showing up on the sanction list, uh, for example, Zeus or Drydex. Uh, and then on top of that, we also check the previous cases that we observed with that specific ransomware. And, and along with the checking of the Bitcoin wallets, it kind of, kind of go to the final decision for whether we are allowed to pay or not. Uh, but going back to the previous Kevin's question, uh, even if law enforcement can identify like certain individuals, uh, it, it really depends on the country of their residents uh, because... Uh, wasted law. Evil Corp would be a, a good example in, in that sense because, uh, like, in December of the last year, a few members of the Evil Corp were indicted, uh, and uh, I think it was like two, three years ago, another member was indicted as well, Bogachev. Uh, but even though they on the FBI most wanted list, uh, uh, they live very comfortably, like in Russia, they cannot travel anymore uh, because if they will uh, go to a country that have an extradition uh, agreement with the United States, they may get arrested and extradited to U.S. But I'm sure with the, with the coverage of the like local law enforcement in Russia, uh, they can continue their operations uh, and they don't have to worry about anything else. A- any experience with... Uh, a larger organization uh, being, you know, taken down by law enforcement, and then uh, factions or s- splinters of that particular group um, continue to survive. Uh, it, it really depends on the location. So I was actually su- uh, very, like pleasantly surprised to hear the news, uh, like in the last couple of months, from Ukraine and Kazakhstan, uh, where they actually worked with uh, with the U.S. law enforcement and, and shut down a few uh, illegal money laundering operations uh, that uh, helped the cyber criminals to launder funds from ransomware attacks. So it, it, it's really uh, an interesting development, and uh, hopefully that collaboration will continue. Uh, un- unfortunately, it's not the case uh, for Russia right now, uh, because uh, like historically, like for the last like few years, uh, whenever their law enforcement like finds uh, like a very competent advanced uh, hackers group, uh, they just flip them over and uh, like force them to work uh, uh, for uh, their like uh, some special services and law enforcement services, uh, helping to c- collect information that they need uh, for the government, uh, and because of that, they get uh, essentially kind of like legal cover or it's, I guess it's illegal cover <laughs> uh, and they can continue operations as long as they don't target any victims in like former USSR countries. That's so interesting. Evgeny, I know that you've, you've shared with us some of your techniques. I don't know how much we can go into this, but um, you know, we've seen the outcome of some of your research how prevalent are those reports? 
to get to where you you were able to collect information about these threat actors and provide that to law enforcement? Uh, like, Erecta doesn't make any money uh, like for collaborating with the law enforcement. Uh, we just do that on our own time because that's the right thing to do. Uh, from from the process standpoint, uh, I mean, like when we're dealing with open source intelligence, it's a very iterative process uh, with multiple cycles. So you get like the initial set of indicators that you found out from uh, maybe like a hacker forum post uh, like advertising a certain variant. Uh, then like from that post and like a research of that profile, we can find like maybe additional indicators, uh, let's say like Jabber accounts or... Uh, links to other forums, uh, maybe some email addresses and some other ways uh, uh, to collect some, some other indicators about a specific person. Uh, maybe they mentioned somebody or like, during their initial approval process on the hackers forums, they linked it to a few other profiles on other hackers forums. Like Once you get that, that initial set of information, uh, then we go into the, like, the first pivot mode. And uh, we're looking at what we, what else can we find, and it includes uh, both just uh, searches on on the search engines, uh, also checking uh, the prevalent, uh, uh, the like favorite, uh, not favorite, I guess, uh, uh, famous uh, hackers forums as well to see if you can link uh, those pieces of information with some additional accounts. Uh, there's also happening all the time, like when uh, a hackers forums would get hacked. Uh, and all the data from their database would be leaked. So, like internally, we also collect all those data dumps as well, and uh, we can search that uh, as well for uh, across the board to see if we get any additional matches. And from that, we can pull additional pieces of information. Could be like email addresses or something else. Then, uh, uh, after you go through that cycle over and over and over again. Uh, it, at some point, there's a very good chance uh, that you compiled in, enough information to identify uh, the specific person uh, behind uh, uh, behind that that uh, like group uh, of cyber criminals. Uh, and yes, and as with the case that you uh, mentioned, uh, we're more than happy to share that information with the law enforcement, and hopefully, it will lead uh, to indictment and maybe someday an, an arrest of those individuals. It's amazing. Uh, Mark, what, uh, anything for uh, Evgeny or Steven? I was actually sitting on the edge of my seat there, Kevin. I was like, uh-oh, you're going to give up Evgeny. He has more risk now than the threat actors <laughs> it's, uh, this, because of how good he is. Um, <laughs> so, no, I... Uh, it's it's just a pleasure, you know, working with Evgeny every day. Just the the intel, uh, his insight, knowledge, it, how we're able to apply that to what we do, um, pays off in dividends to you know internally to the practice and it, being able to give that back to our carrier partners and you know and clients. Yeah, I mean, we we have you know. Um, entire libraries of information that are being developed literally weekly uh, from our experience and from the information that, that our forensics team provides to us. And, and this is just an amazing effort uh, with some very smart people on that team. And Evgeny, you, you certainly uh, are a valuable member of, of the Arate family and, and this sort of deep dive 
uh, as, as deep as we can go uh, are really just uh, amazing. Um, it's just amazing where this is headed. And, and I know that, you know, Stephen, I know that this is the, the sort of intel that you, you, that you leverage during IR engagements every week. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Evgeny takes it a complete step further with, uh, you know, that cyclical type of investigative process where he, he pulls on these threads and uh, follows it to the, the source, um, you know, from a, a quick hit with the companies, you know, there's a lot of information out there about these organizations and they don't even realize it. They don't realize, um, you know, when a data breach uh, occurs and the, that credentials database is dumped and it goes up onto, you know, a website like Have I Been Pwned where anybody can search their email address you know, a lot of folks, you know, they, they go up there with their personal information and search and say, oh, my stuff's in there. I, you know, I got to be careful now. The organizations don't take a step back and say, let's look at our organization and see what that looks up, looks like within, um, you know, the attacker's viewpoint. And so we can, you know, pivot from an individual to a corporation to see what exists publicly at literally on the surface web that, that, can help quickly to reduce that attack service, um, to in, uh, improve their end user awareness training programs, to uh, minimize the exposed services or entry points into their organization. So, you know, threat intelligence, it comes in multiple different uh, faces um, that can really help uh, quickly organizations uh, close their doors and, and uh, start to prevent these types of attacks. We have, um such an amazing ecosystem and it continues to develop every day with regard to these tools and, and our community and it helps improve our communication to carriers and to breach coaches. Um, and ultimately it just, it, it, it reduces the amount of time that is required to recover. I mean, the, some of this stuff just really helps us draw a dotted line from, oh, we're, we're familiar with this attack vector. We're familiar with this payload. Um, and Stephen, maybe you can expound on this a little bit more. When you can connect those dots and recognize, yep, this is this particular variant. It's this particular threat actor, and we know how this is going to go. Um, do you see that reducing the amount of time of IR engagements? A hundred percent. Yeah, that, that type of threat intelligence is invaluable. Once you understand the, the TTPs, the, the tactics, techniques, and procedures by these uh, these attackers, it really helps to speed up forensics because you know what to look for, you know what to expect. Um, and not to say we're cutting corners short during our forensic investigations, but it's more of we're doing everything that we've seen consistently across these matters. When these events occur, it's usually through a campaign. So this group decides to launch a new campaign, they go and infect hundreds of victims, and um, they do the same methodical approach for each of those victims, whether it's brute forcing RDP, pivoting to a, a domain controller, reconning the network, finding all available hosts and deploying the ransomware, to something more elaborate where they're going to uh, post on a, a website uh, a fake browser update, a user downloads, executes it, and now they abuse the, the trusted relationship of the user through their, their VPN, um, getting into the organization, finding, you know, a file server, uh, dropping cobalt strike beacons to, um, you know, malicious power cell usage and ultimately de deploying ransomware. Each group has their own uh, separate uh, 
um, actions they take to break into organizations, to figure out what's available, where it's available, inhibit uh, their ability to recover, deploy the ransomware, and then wait for payment. Um, I was talking with one of my colleagues the other day, and this must have been the quickest we got through one of our forensic investigations. And I said, yeah, it's been it's been literally 36 hours, and you're telling me you have this entire investigation mapped out? He says, yes. And I said, how is that possible? Usually it take a little bit longer. He says, well, it's a combination of, one, the client uh, and their MSP, their managed service provider, was extremely responsive, extremely diligent with grabbing the information as soon as we asked for it got it to us and the forensics team was able to triage and, and analyze. And then the second piece is this attacker is a caveman. It's a bull in a china shop, comes in, lights up the system with a bunch of tools and executables and, and does all the, 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 the fancy dance that they do and the forensics can easily see it. And so we could trace the activity pretty quickly. Um, that's a specific variant. You move into some more of the stealthier ones, they have, uh, it's a bit harder to track uh, they use um, they use anti-forensics techniques, which makes it um, um, harder to analyze and understand what they're doing. Uh, but um, and, and uh, what, can you expound on that just a little bit? Like what what kind of when you say anti-forensic uh, measures, what kinds of things are they? Just high level examples. Uh, the simplest form of anti-forensics is reformatting a computer they did something bad on. So basically, anti-forensics is. Or like clearing logs, things like that. Yeah, inhibiting our ability to reconstruct artifacts, uh, reconstruct activity from the artifacts uh, that would uh, help piece together what they were doing on those systems. So in the simplest forms, they issue a reformat command to the, the computer and the hard drive overwrites itself. And so which renders that information um, inaccessible to us. Um, there's ways to get to the information, but it's not going to be the complete view as if they didn't reformat. Other ways is for them to change the password so we can no longer access the system. Um, deleting logs, uh, clearing the Windows event logs is probably the number one and the easiest uh, anti-forensics technique. Um, some more advanced techniques would be time stopping. So they, they get on, they perform their activity, and then they change the dates of the files that were modified or, or produced their activity to some type of earlier date. So if they downloaded a, a file on June 1st, 2020, uh, they would actually change the created date of that file to January 15th, 2020, to make it look like that file was on the system for, for uh, six months. So these anti-forensic techniques really complicate our investigation. It slows it down because now there's multiple data points that we need to correlate as part of that investigation. Again, these are sometimes more for the advanced type of our groups. Uh, but depending on which group uh, is involved, um, their TTPs, it could uh, be a, a quick investigation or it could be a, a very slow, lengthy investigation. Obviously, this is something that, you know, in, in our efforts to collect data, um, threat actors are, are always trying to get a step ahead and, and thwart that, and uh, which certainly can... Um, it, it can it, it can certainly erase a footprint, um, but there's always a breadcrumb somewhere. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, sometimes it's literally the only only thing we can find is a breadcrumb. Um, there's no actual trail that the breadcrumb leads to another bre bigger breadcrumb, and then you find the entire loaf. Um, uh, 
we've seen, you know, uh, a surge in the use of Cobalt Strike, uh, extremely popular post-exploitation framework. Essentially, it creates a backdoor into the environment and that and ties that system into a larger command and control network. And the commands that are issued to that system through Cobalt Strike are 99% invisible. And so we know Cobalt Strike's on there, but we don't have a good idea of what commands were actually issued to that system. So we can see it was installed, it was run, and we can see other activities surrounding it, like downloading of files, um, the release of payloads and such. We don't actually, we can't actually tie, unless, uh, you know, for most environments, we can't actually tie um, the Cobalt Strike commands to the actions of the, of the uh, executables themselves. Truly fascinating. I think, you know, Mark, we could talk about this <laughs> literally for, for hours and hours. I mean, it's such an amazing topic to cover. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so let's, let's pause it there as we have a, a special guest next week and kind of continuing along this topic. Uh, we're going to be speaking with our president and cyber strategist, a former U.S. Brigadier General of the U.S. Air Force, uh, Jim Yeager. Uh, Jim, in, in this area, it's he, he should have been on the last two episodes. I think everyone really enjoy a uh, conversation with Jim. Also, he was a former assistant deputy uh, director of operations at the NSA. And I, I first met Jim eight years ago when I was a bit nine. And uh, that was kind of my first introduction to threat intelligence on a, a much larger scale. So I think uh, next week we can continue uh, talking about this. Well, I think that does it for this episode of uh, Security Superpowers. Uh, we'd like to thank Evgeny and Stephen for joining us again. So thank you both. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you, guys. And another episode for the books. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast with Evgeny and Steve. Join us next time as we introduce a very special guest, Jim Yeager, President and Chief Cyber Strategist for Arate Incident Response. I'd like to thank Severine Fortin and Colin Hanks for their valuable assistance, as well as you, our listeners, for taking time out of your busy day to check in with us. As always, stay safe, stay smart, and join us again soon for another episode of Security Superpowers.